Church family, I invite you to open up in God's Word to Genesis chapter 35. Genesis chapter 35. We'll look at chapter 35, verses 1 through 29 today. The title of our message is Securing the Purity of God's People. Securing the Purity of God's People. Again, Genesis chapter 35. We're going to get to enjoy reading God's Word. You follow along or listen as I read out loud the Word of God. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. This is the word of the Lord for his church today. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, would you be with me as I seek to preach this passage of Scripture, would you open up my heart and all of our hearts to receive your word with humility, 
with faith and with expectation and a desire that you will change us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Three questions. What is sin? What does sin do to you? And why is sin a problem? What is sin? What does sin do to you? And why is sin a problem? These are some of the most important questions we could ask and then seek to answer correctly. What is sin? Well, sin is any thought, word, or action that falls short of bringing God the glory that he is worthy of. Sin is any thought, word, or action that misses the mark of God's standard of holiness, his standard of holy perfection. Well, what does it do to you? What does sin do to you? We could answer that in so many different ways, but let me offer this one way. It stains us. Sin stains us. It ushers into our lives impurities when compared to the perfect purity of God. If you think about it this way, there is no stain on the holiness of God. But sin brings stain into our lives and makes us look different than God because he is holy and we are not. Then we ask that third question, why is that a problem? Why is sin a problem? Why is it a big deal? Well, the sin of stain, uh, excuse me, the stain of sin in our lives, it simply means that that God must God must reject us. He he cannot he cannot be where there is impurity. The stain of sin in our lives means that God is no longer able to welcome us and accept us into our presence, which means that sin stain in our lives has then created a separation between us and God. And we must be punished because God is holy and just and righteous. He must punish us for our impurity. And friends, the fact of the matter is we are all sinners. We're all in that boat of being stained with sin and therefore separated from God and therefore deserving of God's punishment. Romans chapter 3 verse 23. I bet many of you have that verse memorized. If you don't, you should memorize it. Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But you also know, many of you know, and if you don't know, you need to know that there is good news. That God has a remedy for sin. God has a solution for our problem of sin. God has a plan to make us pure. And his plan doesn't merely give us the possibility of being made pure, but his plan secures our purity both now and forever. It secures our purity when we stand before him in his presence, which means that we would be able to stand before him and be accepted by God if we stand before him as pure instead of impure. This plan is secure, not because it depends upon you or me or anything that you would do or anything that I would do. This plan we can say is secure because it depends 100% upon God and his faithfulness to his promises. Church, Genesis chapter 35 teaches us this, that God's faithfulness to his promise secures our purity in his presence. God's faithfulness to his promise secures our purity in his presence. I hope that you're thankful for that today. If you're unsure about what that means, I hope you pay attention today uh, so that you can learn about how your 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 future being able to stand before God as pure in his sight can be secure. 
You don't have to wonder about that. Now it all rests upon him and his faithfulness. Now, last week we studied chapter 34, and there's a rough passage of Scripture. I don't mean that in any disrespect to it being God's word. I just mean it was full of impurity. Chapter 34 is a passage that is full of impurity. It is impurity on full display. And not only did we see impurity in chapter 34, we saw the human response to impurity. And we learned and saw that the human response to impurity is completely inadequate to deal with the impurity in our lives. And that then drove us to declare our need for God to accomplish his plan of purification. And today in chapter 35, it really tags right on the, to, to, the, to the heels of chapter 34. And we get to dive a little deeper into God's plan, into God's response to the impurity of his people. Now, remember, Jacob has journeyed back into the land of promise. When he gets there, they settle near Shechem. His daughter was raped and his sons responded by deceiving the men of the city and slaughtering all. All of them, not just the one who had committed the crime, but slaughtered all the men of the city. And so now Jacob is scared. He is afraid that the other people of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, are going to come and they're going to attack Jacob and his family for what his sons have done to the city of Shechem. And that's where our story picks up in chapter 35 today. Church, I want to draw your attention to four truths from this passage as we see God's response to our impurity and how his faithfulness to his promise secures our purity in his presence. Truth number one is this. Simply but very importantly, meeting with God requires purification from sin. Meeting with God requires purification from sin. Before we get to God's solution, we are again reminded in chapter 35 of our impurity and therefore our need to be purified. Look at verse 1. God tells Jacob, he says, arise, get up and go. Get up and go. Where? To Bethel. Dwell there, make an altar there to the God who appeared to you. Obviously, he's referring to himself to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Now, to understand the weight of this statement, we have to go back at least 20 years in Jacob's life. If you'll go back even to chapter 28, we learn that when Jacob first fled from the land of promise because of Esau, remember, he had stolen from his brother. His brother wanted to kill him, so he was fleeing from his brother. When he fled, you remember, God appeared to Jacob at the top of a staircase that extended from heaven to earth. God appeared to Jacob in a dream there and God made covenant promises to Jacob and Jacob in return named that place Bethel, which means house of God, the place of God. He was so awestruck that in this place, God would appear to him. He changed the name of that place and he said, I'm going to call this place Bethel, which means the house of God. So when God tells Jacob in chapter 35, verse one, to get up and go to Bethel, go to the house of God, Jacob would have heard this as a call to get up and go dwell in the place where God dwells. Get up, go dwell in this place where God's presence was on display in a very incredible way. Now, this ought to sound like very good news, right? And in a way it is. Get up and go dwell in the house of God. Go dwell where God dwells. But here's the problem. Chapter 34. Chapter 34 is the problem. 
The thought of God's presence, the thought of dwelling in the place where heaven and earth had met immediately brings to Jacob's mind the impurity of his family. His daughter has just been defiled. His sons have just slaughtered all the men of a city in a bloody revenge. Then they plundered the city, which means at this point they're probably now wearing the clothes and the jewelry of their looting and have in their possession the false gods of the Shechemites. Shechemites were not God worshippers. They were false God worshippers. And so they were gone in and taken their stuff and, and they're wearing this stuff and they and they have in their possession this stuff, this impurity. And so Jacob's immediate response here actually reveals our need for purification when meeting the holy God. Notice what Jacob says to his household in verse two through three. He doesn't turn around to them and say, hey, get up and let's go. God told us to go to Bethel. That's not what he says. First, he says, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. You notice those action words, put away, purify, change. Then he says, let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. And then you look at the response of his family in verse four. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. These things that they had collected in Shechem were a reminder of their impurity. And then Jacob took them and he buries them. He hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. He, he what are we going to do with this stuff? Dig hole in the ground, put it there, and then they turn and they leave. They leave it behind. They head towards Bethel. Church, a call to God's presence is a call to be purified. Meeting with God requires purification from sin. Jacob knew they could not enter Bethel, the house of God, in their current state of impurity. Twenty years may have passed, but Jacob still vividly remembered that night and what he saw at the top of that staircase during his dream on his way out of Canaan. And what he saw was perfect purity. What he saw was the opposite of the impurity that now surrounded him in his family. What he saw revealed the need for him and his family to be purified. The false gods needed to be put away. The clothes which either had been worn during the slaughter or had come into their possession as a result of the slaughter needed to be changed. They were impure. They those people, that family needed to be purified, put away, purify, change. Then we can be accepted by God. The same is true with you and me. God cannot accept impurity into his presence, not one little bit. Friends, the beginning of us experiencing rescue from our sin which is the way then to be able to stand before God and be accepted by him. The beginning of that is facing the fact of our impurity and declaring that we have a need to be made pure before the holy God. And maybe for you today, that means for the very first time, apologizing to God that you are a sinner, that you have offended him, that you have been stained with sin and then receiving as an act of faith, not as an act of arrogance or pride, but as a simple act of I need, God, what you have to give me. Receive in faith this gift of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe today you've been purified through Jesus, but you've allowed some impurity to creep back into your life. Maybe even since we met last week and we talked about this theme of purity from the perspective of chapter 34. Maybe even since then, there's been some impurity that has crept into your life. 
I wonder how often we as Christians fail to see God for who he really is. And therefore, we fail to see our impurity for what it really is. When God said, go to Bethel, Jacob immediately thought about that holy God that he had seen 20 years earlier. And he looked around him and said, this is not good. He saw who God was and therefore he was able to see who he was and who his family was. We think we can enter Bethel carrying the gods and garments of impurity. Church, so often we think we can just run to God in prayer in a time of need, sing to God during church worship, open up His Word and expect to commune with God, all the while carrying the baggage of our impurity and just not caring about the impurity that's there, not doing anything about it. We're just going to carry our impurity in one hand and reach out and shake God's hand with the other and it's going to be okay. First John chapter 1, verse 6 says, If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. Oh, that our first thought when we seek to enter God's presence would be to pause and to consider what impurities we may be holding from the past week or the past day or even the past hour and quickly bury them, leaving them behind through confession and repentance before trying then to enjoy fellowship with the God who is pure. James put it this way to Christians and these Christians that he was writing to They had let their sinful passions lead them into the impurity of quarreling and fighting with one another. That was the impurity that they were facing. Different impurity in chapter 34. But in James, in that letter in the New Testament, he's writing, and these Christians, they had let their passions well up within them, selfish passions. They were fighting and quarreling with one another. And this is what James said. Um, He said, well, he said several things, but I'm just going to read a a little bit. He said, cleanse your hands, you sinners. He's talking to Christians. He says, cleanse your, your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. What's that double-minded? It's holding on to my impurity while trying to reach out and touch God at the same time and walk with the Lord. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. You say, I thought we were supposed to have joy in the Lord. And He's saying, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. What's He talking about? He's saying, don't walk into the presence of the Lord laughing with just joy bubbling over in your heart when you're carrying your impurities with you and you're not doing anything about it. First stop and weep over your sin, be broken over your sin, and then we can experience joy in the presence of the Lord. In other words, there is a time, church, to weep over our sin. There is a time when we are convicted of sin in our lives to be broken. And friends, that's not just one time when we initially trust in Christ for salvation. That's every time sin wells up within us and we're convicted. Part of the Christian walk is to it's this, it's this godly discipline of, of confessing sin to the Lord and being broken over that sin. Now, not living under the shame and guilt of that sin, but, but, but at, at some point saying, God, I am broken over this sin. I'm sorry. Maybe even weeping over that sin. And Jesus prioritized dealing with our impurity with this example. Jesus said this, so if you are offering your gift at the altar, in other words, you're coming to the Lord to worship and there, remember, your brother has something against you. In other words, you've you've offended your brother and and, and he has something holding that something against you because you have offended him. It says, leave your gift there. That means that stop worshiping me in a way, even the confession is an act of worship. But you get the point. 
go, go, stop this, stop this pretend worship that you're trying to do while there's sin in your heart. He says, and go and first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Church, we cannot hold our impurities in one hand while trying to extend a hand of fellowship to God with the other. And so let me just ask you this question. What false gods and impure garments are hindering your walk with the Lord today? Friend, put them away and bury them and leave them behind and then enter Bethel. Enter God's presence and enjoy fellowship with him. But we quickly see that entering into God's presence, coming to Bethel, was not something Jacob and his family were going to be able to accomplish on their own. Divine intervention, church. Divine protection was going to be necessary. And it's still necessary today. Truth number two is this, church. Divine protection is necessary for us to enter God's presence. Divine protection is necessary for us to enter God's presence. You remember, you remember Jacob's emotions right now? Remember, he is scared. He is afraid. We get to the end of chapter 34. Remember, he told his sons, you brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. The Canaanites and the Perizzites, my numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. In other words, Jacob feared that the other peoples of the land would avenge the blood of the Shechemites whom Jacob's sons had murdered. So really, as God looks at Jacob and says, get up and go to the land of Bethel, it's really a call to step out in faith because Jacob is going to have to travel right through all of these people who he knows now hate him because of what his sons did. He's going to have to travel right through all of these people in order to get to Bethel. But Jacob acknowledged his family's impurity. We saw that. He told them to put those things away. And they did. And then he stepped out in faith and he headed towards Bethel. And the text tells us that God supernaturally intervened. God supernaturally protected them as they made their way to Bethel. Look at verse 5. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Here's what that means. If God had not done anything... Those cities would have pursued the sons of Jacob. And we've already learned that there were many more of them than there were of Jacob and his family. And they would have wiped them out. But God, but God sent a terror from heaven. In other words, this fear fell upon them. And they, I don't know what that conversation looked like in the households, but for whatever reason, in their minds, we know the reason. They may not have known the reason, but they said, we don't want to mess with those people. We don't want to mess with Jacob and his sons as they're walking through. And the text tells us exactly where that came from. It came from God, but God intervened on their behalf and protected them. God divinely protected their journey into his presence. Remember, they're on their way to Bethel. Their impurity, catch this, their impurity had made the path into God's presence dangerous, but God graciously intervened so that they could safely enter into God's presence. That just screams the gospel right there. I cannot help but think about our own salvation our own journey into God's presence. Brothers and sisters, our sin, our impurity puts us in daily need of God's protection. Remember, God is a holy God. Our sin stains make, 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 put us in a dangerous position when compared to a holy God. 
We daily stand in need of His protection. I don't mean physical protection. I mean spiritual protection. If not for the mighty protecting and preserving power of God guarding us from Satan on the outside and our sinful flesh on the inside, not one of us would ever make it into the presence of God. Thankfully, God is powerful enough to protect us and He's gracious enough to extend that protection to us. My, my mind is drawn to what has become one of my favorite verses in the Bible in recent years. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. Really, the couple of verses before that as well, but I'll just summarize. Peter describes the new life that we have in Christ, the promises of eternity with God, and, and, and then he describes Christians this way in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. He says this, who, he's talking about Christians. He says, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Did you catch that? Christian, Christian, you, who, me, who, by God's power are being guarded through faith for that salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Christian, it is only by God's power guarding you, guarding me, that we will experience the completion of our salvation one day. That we will enter into God's presence one day. Friend, the same powerful God of grace who prevented these now enemies of, of Israel and his sons, Jacob and his sons. The, the same powerful God who prevented those enemies from attacking. The same powerful God who about 400 years later would part the Red Sea as the Egyptians pursued the Israelites. The same powerful God who, gu- who guided that stone from David's sling right into the head of Goliath. The same powerful God who shut the mouths of those lions that were surrounding Daniel all night long. That same powerful God who did not abandon our Savior's soul to corruption, but raised him up from the dead. That same God will protect our salvation, the salvation of his people as we journey toward his presence. As we journey onward to that day when we see him face to face. And when we get there, we'll look back and we'll know the only reason that we arrived safely in the presence of God is because of God's powerful divine intervention and protection in our lives. God's divine protection is necessary for us to enter God's presence, which means daily it's a gift of grace that we belong to the Lord daily. Daily, it's His mercies being made new every morning. But this need to be purified, this need for God's God's divine protection really gears us up for what happens next in this passage. In the next section of this passage, we are, in a way, we're pulled up and out of the trees so that we can see the forest. You know what I mean by that? Like up and out of the details of what's going on in that situation so that we can see the big picture of what God is doing here. You see, the actions of the sons in making all the people of the land mad at them not only put their individual lives in jeopardy, but it put the promises of God in jeopardy. What promises? The promises of a deliverer. Remember, this family is carrying God's promise to bring blessing to the nations through Abraham, which actually that promise goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, where God promised to send a man born of woman who would destroy the serpent, right? And and they are carrying this promise with them. And so the actions of Jacob's sons in chapter 34 actually put in jeopardy that promise, because if they get killed, the promise 
and it dies with them because God's already said it's going to come through this family line. But praise God, God's promise is secure. Why? Because because of the actions of these sons, because of the actions of Jacob, because they turned out to be upstanding characters in the end. No, they pretty much just turned out to be characters in the end. I don't mean that as fictitious. I mean a little crazy, right? They turned out, they were messed up. But what, what, what does the text drive us to here? It drives us to God's faithfulness to his promises. God's faithfulness to his promises. Friends, our pro, God's promise is secure, which means our future purification and therefore our entrance into his presence is secure because God is faithful to his promises. Truth number three is this. The security of our future purification rests in the promised offspring. Say, so how, how can you talk about how secure our presence is when, Zach, I know daily, I mean, I, I struggle with sin. I stumble and fall, right? How can how can a salvation, me being pure in God's presence one day, be so secure if 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 we are all sinners and fall short of the glory of God? Well, it's because it doesn't rest in you or me. The security of our future purification rests in the promised offspring. In verse eight, we learn that Deborah, who was Jacob's mother's nurse, died. Deborah would have helped to raise Jacob. So this was the death of someone who was probably very close to Jacob. And so it's mentioned here in the text. It also kind of raises the question, in case you're wondering, what, what happened to Rebecca? Remember, that was Jacob's mom, Jacob and Esau's mom. She's never mentioned. Her death isn't mentioned. And it's probably because Rebecca probably died before Jacob ever came back to the land. She never got to see her son again, her favorite son, after she helped Jacob. Remember, she had this wonderful plan of deceiving her husband and stealing from her other son, Esau, and Her plan led to her never getting to see her favorite son again. But then in verses 9 through 12, God speaks. God speaks at Bethel. 20 years earlier in that very place, God had promised Jacob an offspring too numerous to count that would bring blessing to the entire world. And now, after 20 years of sin and brokenness and discipline and hardship, and now we've seen in chapter 34, great impurity. God once again proves his faithfulness. God has not changed his promise one bit. Here at Bethel, God then renews his promise to Jacob. He doesn't take away from it. In fact, in a way, he kind of adds to it. Verse 10, he reminds Jacob of his name change. He's no longer Jacob the deceiver, but Israel. It's a reminder that God is graciously giving him a fresh start. And then look at verses 11 and 12. God tells Jacob to be fruitful and multiply. That a nation and a company of nations shall come from you. That kings shall come from your own body. And that the land I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. Church, God's promises to Jacob have not changed. God is going to keep multiplying his people. He's going to make them into a great nation. He's going to produce many nations through them. He's going to produce kings from them. And he's going to give them that promised land in which they can flourish. And all of those promises are leading to the promised offspring who we know to be none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus, who came for Israel and for all the other nations, Jesus, who is God's appointed king of heaven. One of the kings that's coming from Jacob is going to be the Messiah, Jesus, who is the offspring born in this particular land of promise, buried, uh, died in that land of promise, buried in that land of promise, rose up from the grave in that land of promise, who then returned to heaven to prepare a place for all of his people in, in this future dwelling land of promise where those who belong to God are going to live with him in the presence of God, forever enjoying eternal purity from every stain or the possibility of the stain of sin forever and ever and ever. And it's the fulfillment of these promises that we see here in Genesis 35 that are going to lead to the eternal 
purification of God's people because they lead to the purifier of God's people, Jesus Christ. What God is saying is this. Hey, Jacob, I'm not done. I'm not finished. My promises are still alive, but they haven't yet been fulfilled. An offspring is coming. A king is coming. And remember those three questions at the beginning. He will be the solution to your problem of impurity. He will protect you from the consequences of your impurity. He will secure forever your eternal dwelling place with the holy and pure God. Friend, it is God's faithfulness to his promise which secures our future purification. Now, obviously, the coming of the Messiah was still in the future for uh, Jacob and his sons, his family here in chapter 35 of Genesis. But even from our vantage point, church, as we get the privilege of looking back in history to the coming of the Messiah and his death and resurrection, all the promises aren't yet fulfilled. There's still this future aspect of our salvation that we get to look into the future and long for and, and enjoy the security of knowing that it is coming. There's a future fulfillment of God's promises in which Christ will return again and he'll usher in the new heavens and earth and he will finish what he started in washing us clean forever from the impurity of our sins. Friends, the means of our purification is the cross of Jesus Christ and that work is finished. But the full effect of that cleansing is yet to come. And we can rest assured that the accomplishment of that full effect is secure because it rests upon the promises of God and his faithfulness to his promises. The God of Jacob, who is faithful to the end. The reality of future fulfillment really then serves to remind us of our need for faith in the presence in the present. Friends, there's still life to, live, to be lived here on this earth. That, that, that future reality is still somewhere. We don't know where. We don't know when. But it, it's not here right in this moment. So there is this need now for us to walk by faith. Let me share this final truth with you. And we see this in the, in the, in the closing verses of this passage. Continued hardship reminds us of the need for continued faith. Continued hardship reminds us of the need for continued faith. Listen, we want to celebrate That our eternity is secure, but we don't want to lay down our arms yet. There's still sin to fight in our lives in this present world. And we're going to walk by faith until that day when those promises are fully fulfilled and become a reality. After the glorious promises of God at Bethel, Jacob still has more life to live here on the earth. And you know what? That life continues to be marked by pain and hardship and difficulty and strife. No sooner than Jacob sets up a rock to commemorate the glorious promises of God, he finds himself setting up a rock to mark the grave of the wife that he loves most dearly. In verse 16, Jacob sets off to find his father, but on the way, Rachel, remember the love of his life. She dies in childbirth. Ironically, the woman who years earlier, while dealing with the, the difficulty of infertility, had basically yelled at her husband, give me children or I shall die, now finds herself dying, giving birth to her second child. Rachel names him son of my sorrow, but Jacob graciously changes his name, so that's not the name he carries with him the rest of his life, to son of my right hand, which is kind of like saying son of strength, 
Um, and uh, it was a, a much better name for him to carry than son of my sorrow. He names him Benjamin, son of the right hand. But the trials do not stop there. Verse 22 tells us that Reuben, Jacob's firstborn with Leah, committed adultery then with Bilhah. Remember, Bilhah was Rachel's maidservant. So Rachel dies. Then Reuben, Leah's firstborn son, Jacob's firstborn son, commits adultery with Bilhah, who is Jacob's concubine at this point. We get back into this mess of sin. And, and, and it's likely that Reuben did this just out of spite and as an act of superiority over Jacob. It's just a, a way to make Jacob mad. Because remember, Reuben's the son of the wife that Jacob doesn't love. It's a way to kind of get back at his father. Then the text lists Jacob's 12 sons in verse 23 through 26. Notice that they're listed in four groups based on who their mother was. You know what that is? It's the foreshadowing. They're divided up in this list into groups based on who their mother was. And it's a foreshadowing of the division of their family that is going to continue to exist. And we're going to see just a couple chapters later. You can flip ahead when you want to and and read ahead. And you're going to see there's still a lot more strife and bitterness and rivalry here in this family. And then we get to the final verses of chapter 35 and we see Jacob finally returning to his father only to dig a grave for his father along with Esau's help. Church, I just want you to notice this. The journey was not over for Jacob. God's promises were sure, but they were not yet fully realized. And Jacob was still living life in this broken world full of sin and sorrow and death. And eventually he was going to die too, just as he witnessed his father die. And he was going to die having not witnessed God completely fulfill his promises, which means he was going to have to walk daily by faith. Faith in God's promises, faith in God's power and mercy and grace, faith in God's faithfulness. What we see here in the death of Isaac and the continual struggle in this life that Jacob faced is what the Hebrew, the author of Hebrews was referring to when he said this. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Church, as we rest in the security of our future purification, which rests on God's promises, we then press on in this life as exiles in this world. We walk by faith and not by sight. We face the trials and hurts and pain of this life with a humble confidence, knowing that the best is yet to come. Jacob had made it back to that land of promise, but he really wasn't home yet. There was a perfectly pure promised offspring who was coming, who would die for sin to make us pure, who would defeat the grave and who was preparing for us an eternal dwelling place, an eternal promised land where we'll get to live in purity with him forever. And that then is a call for now for us in our lives to walk by faith, faith in God's promises, church, faith in the promised offspring, faith in Jesus. And so let me ask you, have you believed in this promised offspring? Have you placed your faith in this offspring, this king who came from Jacob, Jesus, the Christ? Let me ask you this. What impurities are you carrying in your heart today? What are they? Remember, we began with three questions. What is sin? What does sin do to you? And why is sin a problem? Let me add a final question to that. What do we do with sin? What do we do with it? Once we realize what it is, what it does to us, and why it's such a problem, then what do we do with it? Church, we bury it. We bury it. Where? Where? What do we, where, where do we bury these gods and garments of impurity that we have in our lives? 
Friend, we buried them at the foot of the cross of the promised offspring. We bury them there. We leave them behind. We walk away from them. Not because they're not important, not because they don't need to be punished, because there at the cross, Jesus was punished for our sins. And so we take our sins, we take our impurities, and there we bury them. We lay them upon Christ. They're nailed to the cross and we bear them no more. And then we turn around and we walk towards the presence of God in faith. Facing the trials and the hardships of this life. Trusting that God has secured our eternity with Him. In Christ, our future purity is secure. In Christ, our future in God's pure presence is secure. The question is, are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? Would you pray with me? Father, we say we have fellowship with you while we walk in darkness. We lie and we do not practice the truth. But Father, when we take our impurities and our sin to the foot of the cross and we we leave them there with you, the blood of your son Jesus purifies us from all sin and all impurity. Father, we get to walk in faith, freed up from the bondage and the burden of our sin, knowing that our pure security, our pure uh, future in your pure presence is secure forever and ever. God, are there any garments of sin that we need to cast aside today? Convict us now, Lord. Help us to take them to you. Confess them and rest in the work of Jesus on the cross for our salvation. In Jesus' precious, holy name we pray. Amen.